Well, as we have said over the past few weeks, if I were to ask you to show me the Christmas story from Scripture, my guess is that most of you would take me to the first of Matthew and, and the first of Luke. Some of you Old Testament nerds might take me to uh, the Old Testament prophecies that, that prophesy of, of uh, that tell of Christ's birth in Micah 5, 2, and uh, in, in the book of Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, fewer of you would take me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Only a handful of you would probably take me to John 1, but I'm convinced very, very few, if any of you in here, would take me to where I'm going this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. And as you're turning there, be honest with me for a minute. When you think about Christmas passages in Scripture, how many of you think Revelation 12? No? No takers? Okay. Well, good. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to look at the Christmas story as it is found in the book of Revelation. Now, before we begin, you need to know that anytime you study a passage of Scripture, one question that you need answered is, what type of literature am I looking at in Scripture? Many of you who have, who have taken classes here over the years about how to read and understand the Bible, you know that there are, there are various kinds and types of literature within the Bible. There are, there's the law section of Scripture. There is the history section. There's poetry. There's prophecy. Sometimes Jesus is speaking in parables. There's, there's letters written to certain churches. And you must identify what type of literature you're reading to know how to interpret it. Just like when people used to read the newspaper. How many still read the newspaper? Just curious. Okay, a few of you. Okay, so you know that you read the headlines different from the comics. Do they still do the comics? You read the, the, the sports page different from the obituaries. It influences the way in which you look at that, that particular piece of, of, of writing there. And the same is true when it comes to Scripture. This is important. It determines how you read it, how you interpret it. So what type of book is Revelation? Well, one, it's a letter. It's a letter written by John to, to a group of Christians living in and around Ephesus toward the end of the first century. But it's also apocalyptic literature. It's, it's prophetic, okay? It, it speaks of things that, that have happened, are happening, and will happen in the near future, and will happen in the distant future. And also, in this particular type of literature, it's filled with imagery and, and metaphor. If you've ever read the book of Revelation, you know it's, it's full of both. There are literal sections, but there are also clearly... Uh, metaphorical figurative sections. We're going to look at one today when it talks about a sign. When it says sign, that means something signifies something else. That's what a sign means. So you get, you've got to understand that and know that where to take it literal as far as you can go and then, and then how to understand it. It just it helps to understand these things about the book of, of Revelation. But 
Because it's filled with such imagery in, in Revelation, I think that's one of the reasons many people are fascinated with the book, but also why there is some confusion that comes with understanding the book. And many have a tendency to overemphasize the minor details in the book while de-emphasizing the main message. Well, this morning, like I try to do every Sunday, we're going to keep the main thing the main thing, okay? We're going to focus in on the main message of this book as we discuss Revelation chapter 12. So let's just jump right in, okay? Let me begin reading in verse 1. Look at it with me. And a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. Now let's stop there for a minute. I told you just a moment ago we know that John wrote the book of Revelation. This is the same guy that wrote the Gospel of John, where we were last week, and the letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and we talked about a moment ago, he is, he is writing, while exiled on the island of Patmos, this, this vision comes to him, and he's writing to a group of, of Christians who were in Ephesus at the time. But John is in Patmos. I kind of picture him looking up into the sky and just recording this vision as it is unfolding before his eyes. Look again at verse 1. He says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. So that means he's looking up into the sky, and here comes this visual, this sign, this image, this story that is unfolding before him. And in this story, just like with any story, there are characters that John sees. The first character, the first person, is the woman in, in verse 1. And this woman is symbolic. Sign means symbolic. You with me? We're going to read further. She symbolizes God's people. Okay? The woman, God's people. That's who she represents. So in this passage, when you hear about the woman, know she represents God's people. In verse 2, we're told she is pregnant. So her child is the second character in this story. We'll talk a little more about him in a moment. It's pretty obvious who he represents. He represents Jesus, okay? And then we have the, the third character, the antagonist, the villain in the story. Every good story has one of these, right? And here he is in verse 3. Let's look at it. John says, And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon... With seven heads, how, how many of you, is this sounding Christmassy yet? Seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. Now, now notice here that, that two of our characters, the woman and the dragon, referred to as signs. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to really hammer on this because I want you to see this. It signifies something. Two characters are symbolic. We already said the woman symbolizes, she signifies God's people. It should be pretty obvious who the dragon signifies. We're going to be told it later on. This is Satan, okay? Satan here. And the dragon here is described by John as a powerful and harmful being. Look at verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. 
And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Okay, as we said earlier, every good story has an antagonist. Every good story has conflict. Here in verse 4, we have both. We have this great dragon, and we have this great conflict in our story. Here we discover what the dragon is trying to do. There is a woman who is pregnant, about to give birth, a dragon standing in front of her, and as soon as the woman delivers the baby, the dragon is waiting to devour the child. Now that is a terrible image, right? Some of you are thinking, Graham, it's Christmas, right? Why tell us about stories about dragons devouring babies? Let's sing Silent Night and go home, right? Go home, let's do some Bing Crosby and forget about it. Stick with me. Like I said a moment ago, this is going to help you better understand the Christmas message and the meaning of the Christmas message. But this is scene number one of the story. John is watching unfold in the sky. Scene number one is the dragon versus the child. And here's what's interesting. This conflict, this tension, is a theme that runs throughout the Bible, doesn't it? We, we see as early as the first book of the Bible, chapter 3, we looked at it two weeks ago, this conflict. And it continues throughout the scriptures. And we see it here in Revelation 12. One of the key themes in the Bible, good versus evil, God versus Satan. A tension that has existed since the beginning. There, there has almost always been this tension between good and evil, God and Satan. God has always been righteous and holy. And shortly, shortly after he created Satan, Satan turned away from God. He rebelled against him. He was cast from heaven. And, and since then, he has always stood in opposition toward God, challenging the integrity of his good word and trying to challenge and frustrate his good plan. That's what we have here. And we're drawn to, we can relate to these kind of stories because we know deep down this concept of, of good and evil. It is a fundamental part of life in this broken world in which we live, right? The stories we watch, fictional and true, the things we see on the media, we see good and, and evil in this broken world. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 5. She, the woman, gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Here we have the Christmas story right here. When I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at the Christmas story in the book of Revelation. Here it is, right here, verse 5. This child is Jesus. Notice it, it says here, she gave birth to a, a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, who will be the king of the world. This is referring to Jesus here. In this story, we learn that Christ has chosen to identify with us. We've been talking about that over the past two weeks. We have looked at in this in Genesis 3, 15, in John 1. As we said earlier, the woman represents the, the people of God. She represents us, and her child is Christ. John shows us here how much 
Christ has identified with us. He, God the Son, has chosen to identify with us to such an extent that he became one of us. He stepped out of eternity and into history as a man and was born and lived with us. While he humbled himself, he emptied himself by taking on flesh, by becoming one of us to live among us. He came to restore us. He came to rule over us. He came to reign in us. John tells us she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations. This is a Christmas story. Christmas is a story about a king who has come. You want to ask me my favorite Christmas hymns? The one that sing, the one that, that uh, are, are tell about King Jesus. Those are my favorite. I love the emphasis on the king of kings coming because that's the emphasis of the story. It's a story about a king who has come, a king born to deliver a people, a child and yet a king born to reign in us. This is what we celebrate, the fact that Jesus, who is God, identified with us by becoming one of us. That's the Christmas message. How incredible is that? The eternal Son of God, the second person of the Trinity who has existed throughout all of history with the Father, who is equal with the Father in terms of his essence, in terms of his nature at a certain point in history, chose to identify with us by becoming one of us in order to redeem us. Isn't he wonderful? God has sent his Son to become one of us, to give his life for us, so that he could give life to us. So that he could bring us back into a right relationship with him and have life in his name. That's the message of Christmas. That's what it means for Jesus to be our Emmanuel, God with us. John also explains it in this way. We looked at this last week. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Then he says in verse 14, And the Word became flesh and tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us, or as Eugene Peterson casually says, he moved into the neighborhood. That's what Christ did. He became one of us to identify with us in order to save us from sin and bring us to God. John gives us that message in John 1 and here in Revelation 12. Now granted, this is the Cliff Notes version of the Christmas story in, in Revelation 12, okay? You don't have any mention of angels or shepherds or, or, or a manger or wise men. So parents, if you're trying to hurry your kids to bed on Christmas Eve night, you can read them this story, okay? From Revelation chapter 12, verse 5 is very, very quick. Brief account of Jesus' life. He was born. He is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron and then caught up to God and to his throne. Very brief. We don't have any mention of the miracles Jesus performed. We don't see the death of Jesus here. It just says he was born on earth, then he returns to be with the Father. Why does John leave out all of these details? Here's why. Because the main point John is making here, I want you to get this in Revelation. This is why Revelation is said to be, it's given a blessing to those who read it. Those who read it are blessed. Why were Christians in Ephesus who are being persecuted, by the way, at this time, why were they blessed by reading the book of Revelation? Here's why. The point John is making here is, in the battle of good versus evil, in the 
And the battle of the dragon versus God, the dragon versus the child, the dragon versus God's people, the dragon is defeated. The child wins. The Lord is victorious. He's born, he accomplishes his mission, and he's raised to be seated at the right hand of the Father on high. The dragon loses, the child is victorious. We are told Christ will rule all the nations with the rod of iron. That comes from Psalm 2, that's why I read it this this morning. That psalm is looking forward to the day when good will ultimately triumph over evil. It's a prophecy that says that one day God is going to send his king and his king is going to rule with a rod of iron. And John in Revelation 12 is pointing to us and saying, that's Jesus. That's who he's writing about. That's Jesus. He is the one who has come to fulfill that promise. So that's the first scene. The child versus the dragon and the child wins. Here's the second scene. Scene number two is the dragon versus Michael and The angels. The dragon versus the angels. Look at verses 7 through 9. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Once again, right here in this passage, we have a great story of good versus evil. There are so many questions that that we want to ask from this passage, right? Number one, what does it look like for angels and demons to fight? I know that some of our our young boys in here, they're probably wondering that, right? What what does that look like? There are a lot of famous paintings depicting this. We we don't know. Here's another question that people have differences of opinion on. When does this happen? Some argue that John is not, not seeing these things in chronological sequence, but in pictures that tell this story of this conflict throughout history. So the first scene is the birth of Jesus and his earthly ministry, and then the scene jumps back to the fall of Satan at the beginning of the story. Others argue John is watching these things happen in chronological sequence, and so John is writing about the birth of Jesus, then Satan's attempt to defeat him during his earthly ministry and at Calvary and failure to do so. Others argue that these events happen in the future. Okay? Difference of views here. And by the way, credible, solid evangelicals who are good friends, they disagree on on the when and the how it's all going to work out. I know John Piper, John MacArthur, R.C. Sproul, all three guys have different views on these things, okay? And, And argue these things different ways using Scripture. And that's okay, all right? It's it's important that we land on the fact that Christ is returning in the future, amen? There's going to be a final judgment, amen? Those who are trusting in Christ alone for salvation will be raised physically, spiritually to life 
eternal in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ and they'll be like him and those who are not trusting in Christ alone for salvation will also experience a resurrection to eternal condemnation, okay? So we agree on those things. We can, we can disagree agreeably on, on the rest. Let me, let me read a, a quote for you by Dr. Dennis Johnson. This is in his uh, commentary on Revelation. This is taken from the ESV Study Bible, by the way. So you have this in your notes if you have the ESV Study Bible. He says, The victory of Michael and his holy angels over the dragon and its co-conspirators may symbolize the triumphant power of Jesus' cross or a subsequent defeat of demonic forces flowing from Christ's victory at the cross or the original casting of Satan and his demons out of heaven. Many futurists think he was thrown down to the earth indicates intensified demonic activity on earth during the Great Tribulation. Again, biblical scholars have disagreed over these things for years. I'm sure we could sit down in a Bible study setting and discuss and debate these things for hours. That's not why John wrote this book. Okay? Think about it. Did John write to a group of Christians suffering persecution in Ephesus so that they'll just have something to sit around in their jail cells while they're being persecuted and discuss these little nuances and details from the book of Revelation? Is that right? why he wrote it? Did he write it so that they could map a chart from the ceiling to the floor of all these details that, that, and, and conjure up all these theories about who is what and how the end's going to go down and when? Do you think that's why John wrote this book? Do you think he wrote this book so we could write a series of popular fiction books, be made into movies starring, starring Nicolas Cage? I think one of them starred Nick Cage. Is that why John wrote this book? No. This is where context comes in. Again, the original audience that John is writing to are Christians living in and around Ephesus, and they are being put to death for being a Christian. John is writing to them with this message. He's saying, guess what? I know right now it seems like you are fighting a losing battle being a Christian. You ever feel that way? Like sometimes it feels like we're losing. We're fighting a losing battle. John's writing to a group who are there. John is saying, I know it feels as if Satan is winning and you're on the losing team because your friends and family are being put to death for following Christ. But know this, you're on the winning side. In Christ, you are victorious. That's what John's saying. That's John's point. That's the message of Christmas. It doesn't matter if you're a partial preterist or futurist, a post-millennialist, a millennialist, classic pre- or dispensational pre-millennialist. The message is the same. In this battle of good versus evil, God versus Satan, the dragon versus the child and his angels, the Lord has been, is, and will be victorious. When you think about a baby in Bethlehem, what should come to your minds first is not a sentimental feeling of, oh, how cute and sweet he must have been, but victory. The Christmas story is about victory. The woman gave birth to a male child. 
who is to rule all the nations with the rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. John is, is writing to comfort those being persecuted by telling them you're on the winning team. Continue to be faithful because while it seems as if Satan has the upper hand, it does seem that way at times, doesn't it? He says in the end he loses. He has always been on the losing end and will always be. John is writing to encourage these believers to be strong, to be faithful, to be brave, to be courageous in the midst of the war they are in. That's why he writes this book to them. So that's scene number two. The dragon versus the angels, and the angels win. Let's move to scene three. The dragon versus God's people. The dragon versus the woman who represents God's people. So the good news is the dragon has been is and will be defeated. Imagery here lets us know him getting thrown down from, from heaven. That's the imagery we have here. While he opposes God, his son, and his angels, he is defeated. That's good news. Here's the bad news. He's thrown to the earth. Who's on the earth? Who's on the earth with the dragon? God's people, right? Look back up in verse 6. After giving birth to the child... After the child accomplishes what he is sent to accomplish and returns to the father, we're told, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Again, look at this quote by Johnson from the ESV Study Bible. little explanation on this verse. The child's mother fled into the wilderness, a setting in which God's people are utterly dependent on him, but are protected from the dragon's rage. There, she was nourished by God's provision, as were Israel and Elijah. Some scholars think the time period symbolized as 1260 days or a time, and times and half a time began with Christ's ascension and will end when Christ withdraws his restraint on the dragon's power to deceive the nations and gather them against the church. Others understand the 1260 days, three and a half years, to represent the second half of the Great Tribulation and to be the same period as the second half of Daniel's 70th week. On this view, the woman's fleeing into the wilderness indicates that during the Great Tribulation, Jewish believers will be persecuted by the Antichrist and will flee into the wilderness. Just a little commentary there on the differences. I'll let you debate that over lunch with friends and family, okay? Here's the point I want you to get again. In the book of Revelation, you have an explanation being given of what has happened, is happening, will happen in the near future, and will happen in the distant future. That is the way prophecy reads, by the way. It tells of things that are happening, will happen in the, in the near future, and then will happen in the distant future as well. You have things being described that, that are happening, things that will be fulfilled in a short period of time, and things that are distant. But I believe John in this passage is explaining to the persecuted believers in Ephesus and to us and to those who come, his greater Christian audience, what has taken place throughout history to this point 
what is, is to take place and what will continue to take place until the end comes. Satan has been defeated by God. He's been crushed by Christ. He's been cast from heaven. Jesus even makes comment on it. Remember during his, during, uh, I think it's in Luke 10, when his disciples are coming back and, and they, they, they saw the, the, the demons in submission to uh, them through Jesus, obviously, their, their power of Christ in them. But, uh, but Jesus mentions Satan falling at that moment. I believe he's mentioning a fall that's happening. There's a fall that has happened, a fall that is happening during his earthly ministry, a fall that happens at Calvary, a fall that, that, that will happen as well. But John's emphasis here is, is that, that we are secure believers because of Christ, and in Christ we are victorious. That's the, that's the message for you to take away, whether you're a... a partial preterist or a, or a full-blown futurist, okay? That is the message John is given, giving here to the persecuted Christians in Ephesus. That's his message to us, and that's his message to the church in the future if the Lord delays his coming. Look at Revelation chapter 12, verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. The dragon was originally opposed to the child, right? He wanted to defeat the child. He lost. He opposed the angels. He's defeated, thrown down to the earth. He pursues the woman, God's people. He goes after her. He pursues her, but he's not successful because she is protected. God protects her. God protects his people from the enemy. Verse 6 again, And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished, Verses 14 through 16, skip down, look at that. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and a half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out from his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon that, that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Lots of imagery here. Again, what John is basically saying is this. God protects his people from the dragon. The Christmas story is a story of rescue. It's a story of salvation. It's a story of protection. It's a story of triumph. Christ has come to destroy the works of the devil and save us and make us secure in him forever. It's a story of death sting being removed. It's a story of our enemy being crushed. It's a story of war, but it's also a story of victory. It's all there. Verse 17, the, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. So the dragon becomes even more enraged because he can't get to the woman because she is secured by God. He then goes even stronger after the people of God. He makes war on them. Now, now notice at the end of verse 17 how God's people are described. John says Satan makes war against those who keep the commandments of God and those who hold to the testimony of Jesus. So if you're doing that, get ready. John is writing here to let the original readers know, this is you guys. This is who you are. 
You guys are living in scene three. Christ has come. He's accomplished salvation through his life, death, and resurrection. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father on high. Satan has been defeated. His end is all but certain. John is writing to tell them, I know life is tough for you guys. I know your friends and loved ones are being put to death. For the cause of Christ. That's the context again of Revelation. Believers, for us today, you would say, I know your world is getting really dark. I know it seems, believers, today, as if society morally is in the sewer. I know it feels as if the enemy is winning, but I'm writing this book to you. I'm sending you this letter to let you know that you are victorious in Christ. Therefore, keep following hard after God, keep obeying God's commandments, keep holding strongly and tightly to the testimony of Jesus Christ. Christ has defeated Satan. That's the story here. He has won the battle. He is victorious in the war. How has he done it? How did Christ defeat Satan? As we discussed earlier, Satan was initially out to destroy Christ, ready to devour the child soon after his birth. How then do the tables turn on him? How does this child then go on to defeat Satan? He does it in the most unlikely of ways, doesn't he? He does it through his own death. The child allows himself to be betrayed and tried. And killed. You have to think that when Satan witnessed this, he had to have been thinking, I've done it. Finally. I've finally destroyed him. He is no more. He's lost the battle. I've won the war. And, and that's what all of Christ's followers were, were thinking as well in that day at that time. The day Christ died was the darkest in human history. The purest of all to ever live was betrayed, denied, tried, beaten, mocked, and hung between thieves on a shameful and painful cross. And right after Christ died, it did seem as if all hope was lost. It seemed as if God had failed. But what's so ironic about the cross is that while at that time this event was, was, was thought by Christ's followers to be the most tragic and darkest event in human history. It ends up being the most important, spiritually beneficial accomplishment in all of human history. I love the hymn, Low in the Grave He Lay. We normally sing that around Easter, right? But I think it's fitting this morning in this text of Scripture because it really captures this. Listen to these lyrics. Low in the grave he lay, Jesus my Savior. Waiting the coming day, Jesus my Lord. Vainly they watched his bed, Jesus my Savior. Vainly they sealed the dead, Jesus my Lord. Death cannot keep his prey, Jesus my Savior. He tore the bars away, Jesus my Lord. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph o'er his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain, and he lives forever with his saints to reign. He arose, he arose. Hallelujah, Christ arose. You know, there are few things in this world that we can be confident about. Life is filled with tons of uncertainties, but this is one truth that we can take to the bank. 
Christ has defeated the enemy. He has conquered sin and death, the works of the devil, and has done it through his life and death and resurrection. Through his death and resurrection, Christ has won the war for us. You need to be thinking about that at Christmas. You need to be thinking about the war and you need to be thinking about the victory that has been won on our behalf. This is the reason John is writing Revelation. To give God's people confidence that while times are dark, Christ is the light of the world. While it seems as if they are losing the battle, Christ has already been victorious. That's the message of the book of Revelation. He is writing to them to tell them this. I know you're currently living in scene three where Satan is alive and well and is waging war against God's people, but I want you to know you have a reason to be hopeful because Christ has defeated Satan and in him you too can be victorious. That's what's so great about the Christmas story in the book of Revelation. The Christmas story in the book of Revelation goes, I love this, from birth to victory. From birth to victory. Great reminder for us this year at Christmas. When you think of a child in the manger, what should come to your mind is victory. The child in the manger, write this down. He's the king of glory. He's the snake crusher. He's the dragon slayer. How about that, kids? The conquering king and the victorious Lord. Those are the images we've seen in Genesis, John, and in Revelation. So hopefully, if you didn't realize it already, now you see there's a Christmas message in Revelation 12. There's a whole lot more to the Christmas story than simply a baby and some angels and shepherds. That's great. All of that's great and wise men. But Christmas should also remind us there's a war being fought. There's a war that has already been won, but a war we're still currently in, even though the victory is sure. Should remind us that we're at war. There's a battle taking place and that God wins. And the way is won is by identifying with us in the person and work of his son Jesus in order that we might identify with him. So I want to end this morning by encouraging you to make sure that you are on the right side of the war. And the way you get on the right side is by identifying with the one who has come and who is victorious, the Lord Jesus Christ. Identify with him by turning from your sinful and wicked way and turn his way. Give your life up and over to the Lord Jesus. Place your faith and trust in Christ alone for your salvation. If you're here, you've never made that decision, I pray you would today before we leave here. Let's pray together.